episode 73, Couch Potato. I'm Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a January 28, 2009 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. Paperback Writer! Harriet Beecher Stowe's book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, revealed the cruelties of slavery to shocked readers in the North. Her book became the best-selling novel of the 19th century. In the South, her sales weren't quite so impressive. There, her story angered slaveholders and set the stage for the American Civil War. Join curator Blair Tarr and me as we examine a couch connected to the genesis of Stowe's world-changing novel. Did this couch spark the Civil War, or was it just a comfortable place for a nap? Then, we join museum staff as they put the finishing touches on the museum's newest exhibit, Lincoln in Kansas, opening January 29th. We'll take you on a behind-the-scenes tour as Lincoln artifacts are prepared to meet the world. Finally, join us for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White, The Dark Side. This week, we connect White, a newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy and arch-nemesis of Abraham Lincoln. But first, Couch Potato. You must pretend that you can say Today we are discussing a rather simple, um, late empire style couch that may have helped spark the American Civil War. Um, As the story goes, a young abolitionist woman sat on this couch while formulating a book. The abolitionist was Harriet Beecher Stowe, and the book was Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, Blair, today Stowe's writings are read by school children and college students throughout the country. Uh, what were the origins of this uh, pretty influential writer? Well, first of all, I have to ask, as a school child or a college student, and I'm using those terms interchangeably, did you actually read anything by Harriet Beecher Stowe? Okay. A lot of her readings are assigned. I see. Okay. <laughs> but, um, no, I don't know that I read everything assigned by Harriet Beecher Stowe because it's a little thick, some of it is. It's a little thick, and it's a little has that 19th century flow of writing to it. Well, anyway, Harriet Beecher Stowe was uh, a woman from a prominent New England family. Her father was a minister and very much an abolitionist. Had a very large family of children, and most of them became abolitionists themselves and were very active and had their own degree of fame to some extent. she herself, uh, when her, hus- her father rather took a job as president of a seminary in Cincinnati, Ohio, in the early 1830s, uh, she went west with him, and that was where a lot of the story she got Uncle Tom's for, for Uncle Tom's Cabin came from. Uh, this was very much an area where abolitionists were active. The Underground Railroad was active. Uh, she sat down and talked to many of the people that were involved in bringing slaves across the river from Kentucky, which was slave at that point, and led them on up into Canada. So they, she heard quite a few stories, and that's what becomes the genesis of 
Uncle Tom's Cabin. But she, was she in contact or interacting with slaves, or was she primarily dealing with escaped slaves? I, I think she was dealing more with escaped slaves, although I'm not a little uncertain from some of what I've read. It does sound like that she did cross over into Kentucky occasionally and was trying to get an idea what the slave market or slave life was like, whether or not she ever actually talked to a slave who was still under the control of a slave owner. Was she doing that for research for the book? Uh, like I said, this was a family that was very much interested in the abolitionist mm-hmm. cause, and I think she was going to hear the stories one way or the other and have contact with these people. I see. So I take it she was well-educated herself? She was well-educated herself. She eventually married a man named Calvin Stowe, who was a minister himself. In 1852, Stowe wrote the book Uncle Tom's Cabin, which became the best-selling novel of the 19th century. Actually, um, it's supposed to be the second best-selling book of the 19th yes, century, right only behind the, the Bible. It's always The Bible always seems to be first, no matter what century it is. <laughs> That's yes. right. Um, so what was this book about, and why was it so popular? Well, she actually wrote it the year before that. The book came out, but she, like a lot of 19th century books, it was ser- appeared in serial form, meaning that it appeared in some publication, usually on a weekly or monthly basis. Uh, but the whole book was put together in 1852. It is, as I've already sort of alluded to, a coll- she's taken the story she's heard of escaped slaves, and she's taken them, maybe fictionalized them a little bit, added some elements. Why it becomes so popular? Well, that's a matter of judgment, <laughs> depending on who's reading it. Mm-hmm. It is very popular in the North. It's seen as a book which is telling a true story of slavery and what an evil it was, which is what she wanted to get across, that slavery was basically evil. Do you think it created sort of an almost kind of expose mentality? Like people were getting a window into something. People in the North were getting a, a view into something they didn't really know much about. Yes, I think you probably could say that. I think there are a lot of people that probably had a good idea about what slavery w- was about, but this really kind of crystallized it into one source. Now, if you were in the South, you didn't agree with that necessarily. Right, right. <laughs> and there were books that were published in the South that were glorified slavery. So you're saying Uncle Tom's Cabin, probably not the number one bestseller in uh, in the South. No, I, I don't think so. In, in fact, the, I suspect it was probably stolen off most book, bookshelves. Probably. <laughs> According to legend, when Abraham Lincoln met Stowe in 1862, he stated, so this is the little lady who made this big war. Why did he say that? Well, as you said, it is legend. We don't know for sure that he actually did say that. But it makes some sense, and it's easy to explain. Uncle Tom's cabin did help at least contribute to the atmosphere that led up to the Civil War. may not be the prime reason. Certainly you have some other things like Bleeding Kansas, various slave laws that are passed in the 1850s that add to the fire. Uh, But yeah, Uncle Tom's Cabin goes a long way uh, towards crystallizing both North and South into thinking that this battle over whether slavery is going to exist or not is going to continue and it's going to come to a head at some point. In the book Uncle Tom's Cabin, a female slave named Eliza escapes to the north with her young son. How is this couch connected to the development of that character? And how did the couch end up in Kansas? Well, okay, this is going to be a long one. Uh, (laughs) Well, don't say it like that. Yeah. Uh, 
This gets back to Harriet Beecher Stowe being in the Cincinnati area. There was a town named Ripley, a little bit to the east of Cincinnati along the river, uh, which was a major underground railroad uh, location. And there was a fellow there by the name of John Rankin, who was one of the big writers about abolitionist abolition. Uh, he personally is credited with helping over 2,000 slaves to escape via the Underground Railroad at Ripley. Now, Harry Beecher Stowe gets to talk to Rankin about some of these stories about escaped slaves. There's also a family named McKegg, who is there at Ripley as well and is active in the Underground Railroad. It's the McKeg family that we're interested in this case. She is supposed to have visited the McKeg family at their home in Ripley and sat on this very sofa and listened to Mrs. McKeg talk about the story of Eliza Harris, an escaped slave who, in the middle of the wintertime, arrives at the banks of the Ohio on the Kentucky side and is trying to get across into Ohio into Ohio and into freedom. Finally got that out. The story is related to Harriet Beecher Stowe. By Mrs. McKeg, at least that's the story the McKeg family has. There's also stories that John Rankin may have told her the story. It's possible both of them told her the story. But at least on the McKeg side, the sofa is where Harriet Beecher Stowe was sitting when she heard the story. Mm -hmm. As it turns out, these abolitionists after the Civil War, nearly all of them come to Kansas. John Rankin comes out here, he dies at the town of Quinimo. The McKeggs are also coming out here. Uh, they settle in Anderson County, a town called Gridlock, or not Gridlock, Glenlock. Glenlock. <laughs> it's where he dies. He, this is a son of the family that has been active as abolitionist in Ripley. He's active himself before the war, but he doesn't die till 1925. He gives the sofa to the Historical Society the year before, and there's a story. He relates the story onto the Historical Society about how Harriet Beecher Stowe sat on the couch and listened to his mother tell the story of Eliza Harris, which winds up in Uncle Tom's cabin. Mm -hmm. The only other thing that McKig really gets into, too, he does, it's very curious. He actually says that the family that owned Eliza was apparently a rather nice family and didn't actually harm her. Still wrong about slavery, but... Doesn't that sort of parallel the narrative of the book as well? It that does, there's I a think, compassionate yes. White yes, there is a cares. compassionate family. That's, and I think it's Eliza's family, as I recall. Uh, the, I read that much. Yes, yeah, very good. <laughs> was it the book or was it the Cliff Notes? <laughs> uh, the other thing he says that Harriet Beecher Stowe says just before she's leaving the McKeg house is that she's going to take a packet boat to Maysville, Kentucky, and try to study the slave life over on that side. Whether this is all true or not, it's always conjecture, of course, when you get an artifact like this. The fact that we have so much that sort of fits together, though, it sounds pretty good. Near Wamego, Kansas, stands the Beecher Bible and Rifle Church. It's a, it's a little, little stone yes. church um, built in the 1850s. Uh, during the state's territorial period, Beecher's Bibles were code for firearms, correct? Uh, specifically, Sharps carbines, yes. 
How are those how are those Sharps carvings and the church, how are they connected to Harriet Beecher Stowe? Well, this is one of those siblings of Harriet Beecher Stowe that does have a certain degree of fame. Her brother Henry Ward Beecher was a prominent minister and abolitionist again, and he raises money in New York City. He's uh, very famous he's in New York famous. City. He's very famous. Oh yes. It's <laughs> kind of like he's he's the yes, man of the century. The, there. Yes. But he raises money for these Sharps carbines, and they are shipped, of course, to Kansas in boxes that are marked either books or Bibles. Uh, the church, of course, uh, it's an area settled by New Englanders who would probably have been very familiar with the Beecher family and other abolitionists from New England. That uh, They were very much probably admirers of Henry Ward Beecher, actually. Blair, if Stowe uh, was inspired to write Uncle Tom's Cabin while sitting on this couch, I wonder what other famous literary works were inspired by pieces of furniture. So I will give you the name of the book, and you tell me what piece of furniture served as its inspiration. For example, um, let's talk about The Pit and the Pendulum by Edgar Allan Poe. Okay. I like to think... Poe was a bit of an alcoholic, right? He had some rough nights. So I would like to think that this story of torture was probably inspired by an early morning rising from the alarm on a uh, grandfather clock while he was slightly hungover, thus creating a sense of torture. Then you have an idea of what Merle's hangovers are like. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So, okay, that's my example. So we'll start out with a, a Kansas classic, uh, L. Frank Baum's The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Ah, uh, yes. Okay, well. If it were inspired by a piece of furniture. <laughs> the best I could probably do on this is probably a bed. He probably hit his head like Dorothy did, and he was lying on the bed. And That's true. Drummed all these things up and then wrote it down afterwards. That's true. Uh, the other, the other one I have is Upton Sinclair. He wrote The Jungle. What, what, what could possibly serve as, as the inspiration for The Jungle? Do we talk about the Kansas connections on this one, too? Believe it or not, there are Kansas oh, I didn't know there was a Kansas connection to this book. Uh, Sinclair actually goes to Chicago to write this on a commission from the Appeal to Reason, which was a socialist paper that was printed down in Girard, Kansas. No way. So <laughs> That's who paid for him? It's to- who paid for him, yes. I didn't know that. And as another remarkable bit of trivia, when he arrives in Chicago, he's, Sinclair is supposed to make a, st- a statement along the lines of, I'm here to write the Uncle Tom's Cabin of the Labor Movement. So, wow! <laughs> I had no idea that was such a good choice. So, yeah, you did pretty well on that. There's a Kansas <laughs> connection. All right, Blair. Well, thanks for telling us about um, this couch that Harriet Beecher Stowe once sat on. And uh, thanks for giving us some uh, Kansas trivia about the jungle. You're quite welcome. If you would like to see images of the couch that started the Civil War, go to our website, kshs.org, and click on the word podcasts. 2009 is shaping up to be the year of Lincoln. Born in 1809, the museum is commemorating his bicentennial with the exhibit Lincoln in Kansas, opening January 29th. Today, we take you behind the scenes as museum staff put the finishing touches on the exhibit. We start with exhibit's technician Morgan Shortle as she wrestles to make a 200-pound plaster statue of Lincoln sit up straight and not fall apart. 
All right, Morgan, we're talking about the installation of the Lincoln exhibit. And one of the pieces that's going into the Lincoln exhibit is a large um, limestone statue of Abraham Lincoln. But it's, it's not really limestone, is it? No, what no. is it? Plaster of Paris? It is. It's actually um, a limestone um, plaster that was molded to look like Abraham Lincoln. And you and I had to move this the other day. Yes, we did. You did most of the lifting. And, uh, <laughs> and it's pretty heavy. It's pretty heavy. Um, what's The problem with this is that it is plaster, um, so it's, it's fairly delicate. And it's plaster. I think the statue was done in the 1960s, 1970s by an artist named Inez Marshall. She lived in Portis, Kansas, um, and she was a big fan of Abraham Lincoln. So it's fragile. Um, it's heavy. How does that impact how you're going to mount it? What, what did you do, or what did you have to do to try to um, mitigate the fragility of it? Fragility, well, I use that word. <laughs> well, he's originally he was sculpted to sit on a chair, and we are not using the chair because it's too fragile, like mm -hmm. you were saying. So we have to build him a chair, a support to sit in. Uh, so that's what we're doing, and it has to be able to carry his weight. I'm probably going to have to cable him against a wall so he doesn't fall over. Because he's a little top-heavy. He is a little top-heavy. Yeah. So, and his, we have to support his arms, because they're kind of big. <laughs> they are. And uh, I hope his head stays on. In 1861, Kansas became the 34th star on the U.S. flag. But showing all 34 stars on a giant flag isn't easy. Conservation technician Nikayla Zimmerman discusses how the problem is solved with a giant toilet paper roll. All right, Nikayla, we are here in the gallery um, working on installing the Lincoln exhibit, which opens here at the Kansas Museum of History on January 29th. And um, you are currently holding what looks like a giant um, toilet paper roll. Uh, what is it that you're about to do? I like to think of it as a paper towel tube. Um, we're getting ready to hang one of the flags in the exhibit, and the giant paper towel or toilet paper tube is what we're getting. We're, we're going to drape the flag over. The flag is a 34-star flag. Kansas is a 34-state, so this was the U.S. Uh, or United States flag um, in 1861 when Kansas entered the Union. This flag was actually made by a lady in Brooklyn, New York, and it eventually was sent here to the Kansas Museum of History. Um, this flag is a little, is fairly large, is it not? It's yeah, it's pretty big. So, w what do you have to do to hang a large flag like this? Well, there's different ways you can hang flags. Um, we have in the exhibit we have a Civil War flag that's mounted in a frame, um, a pretty technical frame, and that's partly because it's condition. It's in pretty poor condition, and the frame helps hold it together. Um, you can also sew a sleeve on the back, but in the case of this flag, it's made of a fabric that's, it's kind of like, it feels a little like tissue paper almost, it's pretty thin, and if you tried to sew onto that, you might cause more damage to the flag. So we're trying this way, this is the first time we've tried this method of the giant paper towel tube, and basically the flag is going to be folded so that the stars are exposed, and then it's going to be draped over the tube, which is covered with um, archival materials. In this case, it's just a little polyester batting and some unbleached muslin. Finally, Museum Assistant Director Rebecca Martin tells us about a rare gown worn to Lincoln's second inaugural ball and how you can help preserve Lincoln's legacy. 
We are standing in the gallery of the Lincoln exhibit. Um, this is prior, about, you know, less than a week from when it opens, but we're still in preparatory phases. Mm -hmm. Just brought you out here to find out what is your favorite artifact that's going to be featured in this exhibit? Well, my favorite is a ball gown that was worn to his 1865 inaugural ball, and it's made of silk, and it's kind of a smoke blue, and it's got militaristic trimmings on it. So, you know, this is still Civil War. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, the end, but it's still Civil War, so it's got a military theme to it. But I like to imagine how it looked, would have looked when this woman wore it in a ballroom lit by gas chandeliers. You know, it would be really shimmery and glowy, and it'd just be gorgeous. So mm -hmm. I think it's a gorgeous piece. It does. Well, the dress doesn't quite look exactly like it did in 1865, does it? No, it's got some damage around the hem, um, and it's because it's silk, the water that got close to it just kind of wicked up the hem and so now the edge of the hem is really crinkly and brown and so it needs treatment and to do that we're going to have to send it to a professional conservator at a professional lab and that's going to cost some real money so uh, we're hoping that some of the people who um, support our programs will also give their pennies and maybe bigger amounts to treat some of the artifacts in this um, exhibit. And one way to do that is um, by coming to the exhibit, there's there's some ways to contribute. Yeah. Um, and how, how do people do that? Well, we have a top hat shaped box. Uh, that's <laughs> Top hat, because yeah, that's what Lincoln that's wore. That's what Lincoln wore, and uh, that box will uh, support a lot of pennies. So since we get a lot of school kids um, through this time of the year, spring, uh, we know that they have pennies and we're asking for their pennies for preservation. Uh, another way we're doing this is that we're promoting a Give a Lincoln for Lincoln uh, and that's a $5 bill for those of you who are wondering what that is. And if you give a $5 bill at uh, the museum front desk during the run of the exhibit, we'll put your name up on a top hat size sticker in the exhibit um, so that you can show everybody that you supported um, the conservation of these needy artifacts. But any of our listeners out there who want to help support uh, preservation of our collections, if you just go to the podcast page and click on donate, um, you can donate $10 or any increments, you know, beyond 10 uh, to help support these the preservation of these collections. You just have to click on the drop down box and select preservation of collections. Mm -hmm. There is more than one way to donate money to this oh, museum. We're thinking of all sorts of ways. <laughs> yeah. All right, Rebecca, thanks. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Um, this week, joining me is Museum Assistant Director Rebecca Martin. Hello. And Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Howdy. This week, we continue to explore the dark side of William <laughs> Allen White by looking at the more nefarious characters associated with him, at least within Six Degrees. Yeah, we, we don't know anything <laughs> bad about him personally. This week, we connect the Pulitzer Prize-winning writer uh, from Emporia, Kansas, to Jefferson Davis, the United States Senator and only President of the Confederacy. But first, one listener actually sent us a solution to uh, to our last challenge, which was connect William Allen White to the uh, to the shady investor Bernie Madoff. Uh, Rebecca, would you like to read that feedback? Sure. We hear from Cade from Chicago. William Allen White was associated with Louis Brandeis and sent him a copy of his book Masks in a Pageant. Brandeis was nominated to be Associate Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court in 1916. He was a controversial individual and a contested candidate. Clarence Barron, at that time the publisher of the Wall Street Journal, was not a fan of Brandeis and published several accusations against him. 
Clarence Barron, while working for the Boston Post, investigated Charles Ponzi, and through uh-huh. his yeah, and through his investigation, helped lead to Ponzi's arrest. Good for him. Ponzi, while not the inventor of his namesake pyramid scheme, the Ponzi scheme, is the most noted master of this scheme due to the amount of wealth he was able to attain. Mm-hmm. Well, was the most noted. Perhaps it will now be called the Madoff scheme. Oh, nice little bit of humor. <laughs> there, Cade. That is pretty good. <laughs> so, Cade sums it up. William Allen White to Louis Brandeis to Clarence Barron to Charles Ponzi to Ponzi Scheme to Bernard Madoff. Notice I didn't use Taft or Theodore Roosevelt, but could have. He got a little, got a little dig in there. <laughs> well, regardless, that was pretty impressive, <laughs> Cade. Um, now we'll move on to Jefferson Davis. Um, a little bit of background on uh, President uh, I don't know if I should call him President Davis. On Jefferson yeah. Davis, we'll go with Senator <laughs> Davis. Um, he was born in 1808. He was a graduate of West Point. He was a senator from Mississippi and a former Secretary of War. And this was all when uh, he did this all for the um, United States, not the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was actually, at first, he was resistant to the idea of secession. Obviously, that changed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One month after reading Mississippi's Ordinance of Secession in the United States Senate, Davis was named Provisional pre- President of the Confederacy. He was later popularly elected. In May 1861, Davis established his capital in Richmond, Virginia, and moved his family into, and I did not know this exists, the Confederate White House. Mm-hmm. There was a Confederate White House. Yeah, and actually we have some <laughs> currency in our collections, federal currency that's, or Confederate con- currency that's got the Confederate Confederate White House pictured on it. Really? Cool. It's not as snazzy as our White House. No, it's not. <laughs> uh, four years later, Davis actually found himself fleeing the rich, fleeing Richmond as General Grant approached. Um, at the same time, Davis was belatedly informed of Lee's surrender at Appomattox. So his, his armies are surrendering and the, um, the enemies are at the gates. Um, after a brief imprisonment, the potential per- per- perpetrator of high treason uh, he was allowed to go free. That's amazing, really. He, yeah. uh, from what I saw, he was never actually charged with any, anything. He was only he was barred from ever running for public office again. Uh huh. Mm, That's what a punishment. Yeah, <laughs> he got a by with got by with murder. He later moved to or he, he spent his retirement in Biloxi, Mississippi, um, and he authored several books. So that's the background on Mr. Davis. Um, Nikayla, I believe you have a solution. I sure do. Uh, (laughs) Before becoming president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis, as you mentioned, served as a U.S. Senator from Mississippi. As a senator, Davis attempted to have Garrett Smith accused, tried, and hanged with abolitionist John Brown. Smith was a member of the Secret Six, a group of Uh, wealthy northern abolitionists who supported Brown's efforts to capture Harper's Ferry. Smith was a cousin to Elizabeth Cady Stanton, mm-hmm. who we all know was yeah. um, a women's suffragist. Uh, Stanton was a friend of William Allen White's mother, Mary Hatton White, and White met her uh, when she visited their house in his childhood. That's pretty amazing. Sweet. There you go. That's pretty good. Yeah. Do yeah. you know it was um, there was members of the Secret Six that really pushed to actually drop the charges against Jefferson Davis at a later point. Really? Mm-hmm. And I think it may have been the Smith guy, but I can't remember. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> yes, indeed. All right, so here's my six degrees. Not quite as impressive. As we both said, uh, as you said, uh, Davis was a senator from Mississippi, and his chief rival was another senator from Mississippi named Henry Stewart Foote. In 1852, Foote actually beat out Davis um, in, a, in a campaign for uh, governor of Mississippi. 
Um, while debating the compromise of the 1850s, Senator Foote, so he's a senator at that time, mm-hmm. he actually drew a pistol and nearly shot on the Senate floor he did this and nearly shot Senator Thomas Hart Benton of oh. Missouri. Um, Thomas Hart Benton's grandnephew also goes by the name of Thomas Hart Benton. He became a renowned artist in the 1930s, best known for his breathtaking murals that today you'll find in places like the Department of Justice. Benton was close friends with another renowned regional artist, John Stuart Curry, who is famous for, for painting the tragic prelude murals in the Kansas State House. Um, Curry was selected for that job. Um, he was tapped for that job and personally contacted by none other than William Allen White. Really? Who was one of the that. premier editors, who was the premier editor in the state mm-hmm. and a real advocate for the arts. And he's the one that kind of talked Curry, um, who was reluctant to do the murals. He talked him into doing them mm-hmm. for the state house. White was part of a committee mm-hmm. that selected mm-hmm. the person who, yes. who painted the murals. So there Very you go. Very cool. To a guy, uh, you know. To a duel on the Senate floor, <laughs> to uh, to an old senator from Missouri. You know, have really changed in Washington. Yeah, as bad as we think politics are now, there not there's no duels on the Senate floor anymore. No, no, no canings. No. no, and now people aren't getting beat with canes. <laughs> Where's the violence? <laughs> All right. Well, Rebecca, would you like to share the challenge for the next episode? Sure. Next week, we're going to give you a Valentine's treat because the timings well, are very close to Valentine's yeah, Day. Term treat's pretty loose here. <laughs> when we connect William Allen White to Al Capone and the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Ooh. <laughs> Who wrote this? <laughs> what happened to Cupid? <laughs> I thought this was a little more interesting. Jeez. Well, there's the violence. Uh, find out if the Sage of Emporia was connected to characters like Murray the Hump, Jack Machine Gun McGun, McGun or McGurn? McGurn. McGurn. And Greasy Thumb Goosick. Ooh. <laughs> How do you get the name Greasy Thumb? <laughs> All right, so if you think you can connect William Allen White uh, to Greasy Thumb and Machine Gun, <laughs> just send us your chain of connections to podcasts at kshs.org. That is podcast with an S. In constant sorrow through his day. That concludes episode 73, Couch Potato. Come back in two weeks when Assistant Museum Director Rebecca Martin examines currency from failed Kansas banks in the 19th century. Turns out, massive runs on deposits, sketchy accounting practices, and shady bank executives are not a new phenomenon. They're an age-old tradition. Learn how monetary policy applies to dusty banks on the frontier. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories.